Today's sermon text is Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, we are in the middle of, uh, we're coming to, to on the end of a, our current uh, series. We start off with something like this every um, new year. Uh, we regroup. We remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, what Jesus has called us to, and really what distinctives make us renewal church. Um, It's helpful to remind ourselves of this because uh, as a preacher I've heard say, a guy named Bill Hybels, he he likes to draw a bucket and then a puddle of water underneath it, and he always says vision leaks. You've always got to keep the vision bucket filled because vision leaks. We forget and uh, lose sight of the main thing at times. And so um, we are, um, this week, I was at a uh, famous restaurant, uh, fine dining at Chick-fil-A, and um, I was there with uh, a young man from our, <laughs> a young man from our church who's in our youth group, and we're just spending some time together and uh, enjoying a meal, enjoying those glorious deep-fried nuggets and that golden Chick-fil-A sauce, um, which is just glorious, nectar of the gods, and... Um, <laughs> So I just want to drink it, you know, just give me like, you want some little sauce? I'm like, yeah, 19. 
I want 19 packets of Chick-fil-A sauce so I can drink them all. Um, if you've not done that, I highly recommend it. And then go to your doctor. Um, but uh, we're sitting there, we're enjoying our meal together, and um, I notice a man walk in who was pretty disheveled. And, um, you know, there's quite a number of homeless folks around here. I assumed he was maybe one of those homeless folks. And he walked in, and I noticed him walk over to the table right in front of us, right beside us. And I looked down, kept eating my food, talking, uh, drinking in that glorious sauce. And um, after another moment, I realized that the conversation was a little more animated. Uh, The gentleman who was sitting at the table with his wife and his children was now standing up talking to this man, and they were having a confrontation. And um, it was intense. Um, It was intense on the part of the man who approached him. The gentleman who stood up was trying to de-escalate the conversation. Apparently this man, uh, he seemed impaired to me in some way. And um, so he got really animated. And the man, again, who was sitting at the table with his kids and his wife, they were looking on in like horror as their little family meal turned into this really strange and bizarre uh, confrontation. And before you know it, this um, man hits him in the face, just hauls off and hits him in the face. And then he does it again. And by this time, like everybody in the restaurant immediately in, in sync went like this. Whoa, 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 whoa. And, and we were all pretty like amazed, frightened, disturbed, you know, like what is happening here? This is crazy. And his wife was just in horror. His kids are looking on him. These are small children. And what happened after that humbled me and awed me because this man immediately gave the gift of mercy, immediately. It was like reflex action. It was part of who he was. He immediately put his hand out as people went to come over and confront this man in his stead. And he said, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. The man continued to just throw profanities at him. And he said, it's okay, it's all right, it's all right. And without approaching him and getting him in, getting in his space, finally a couple of people come over, escort this man out of the restaurant, and before you knew it, he was gone, and the whole restaurant is abuzz. With, what, are you okay, man? What was, that was crazy, whoa, you know, and all this stuff's happening. And, and, bef- and then before I know it, I'm talking to him and another guy who works like with Downline, and then another pastor, and then another pastor, and he looks at us and says, you know, the irony of all of us pastors in a Chick-fil-A is pretty, is pretty hard to miss right now. And so, um, <laughs> and so we're like, man, how's your jaw? Are you okay? And he was okay, and, and the, that night he reaches out to me, shoots me an email, uh, says, man, I wish we would have met under different circumstances, but I'd love to get to know your ministry more, and I find out he's a campus minister, and we're going to be getting together soon. And I walk away that night, like, disturbed, but at the same time inspired by his manhood. Inspired by it. Um, I love the way that this text at least the section that we're studying today concludes. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love. Why do you need to speak the truth in love? 
Because we need to hear truth. Why? Because vision leaks. We forget. Speak the truth, but do it in love. The person that you're speaking to is made in the image of God, no matter what their story is. You don't have a right to harm them. Speaking the truth in love. Part of, part of reclaiming our humanity is not just speaking the truth in love, but it's hearing the truth. We've been taught that when people speak into our lives, it's pain, it's, it's hurt, it's intended for our torment. And at times it has been. A lot of us, a lot, maybe, maybe all of us, come from broken stories and tortured backgrounds. But part of reclaiming our humanity is speaking the truth in love. Because God loves us and he's put us in each other's lives to shape one another and to gently reform us in his image. To speak the truth in love, we are to grow up, grow up in every way into him. Who's the him you think it's talking about here? Jesus, sounds like Jesus starts with a J. Jesus, into, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, us, the body of Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And Paul calls this the measure, the full measure of manhood. He's using the idea, the image of a physical, per, a person's physical body growing as this person matures. And he calls us to grow and mature in our faith in Jesus. And this demands that we ask a question. What does it look like to grow into a Jesus kind of man or people? Because he's talking about the body of Jesus here, the body of Christ. So if you go back to the beginning of this text, back to the beginning, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he spent three previous chapters giving some rich and glorious theology of what it means to be in Jesus and be rescued from the darkness of our sins. And then he gets practical in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of it. He is not saying here, live in a way that you that you keep your salvation or you earn your salvation. That salvation gift has been given to us who follow Jesus. He's talking about this. Understand that the gift of salvation that you have been given is not some flighty, fickle thing. You belong to Jesus and you were bought with his blood. Don't allow your, th- your faith in Jesus to be reduced to a Sunday morning church service, singing a couple of songs, and living the way you want. Remember that you belong to Jesus, so feel the weight of your faith. Feel it. Feel it. 
Be sobered by it. Be convicted by the Holy Spirit when you look at your life and assess the way that you think and talk and live and you're uncomfortable and maybe even disturbed that your life doesn't match up with Jesus and his character. Feel that. For those of you who are in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. Jesus bore all your judgment. This isn't about feel shame and be suffocated by that. But it is feel the weight of the preciousness of the gift that we've been given in Jesus. Feel it. Because you and me are in an American church and in the South to boot where it's just whatever. Jesus-y stuff. Feel this. Respect the grace and the salvation that God has given you. Feel that. So walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And he says, do this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how did he say we should approach taking our faith in Jesus seriously and walking in a manner worthy of our calling in Jesus? What did he say to do? There's a cultivation of Jesus' characteristics we should be about. Anybody remember what they are? Or they're in your they're in the scriptures there. Anybody? One starts with an H. Humility. Humility. What else? Gentleness. Patience. Patience. How about enduring love? Peace. He says at the end of this text, this is what it looks like to grow into Jesus' manhood. There are plenty of people. Plenty of people who would have hit that homeless guy in the face. There are plenty of people who would have made sure that he was charges were pressed and that he experienced the full weight of the law in reaction to his sin. But this brother gave the gift of mercy. How do we know it was mercy? Because he totally did not deserve it. That's when you know something's mercy. He totally did not deserve it. In the same way that we don't deserve the love of God. He gave us mercy. Last week, I ended my sermon with a challenge from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter... The, the, the moment the church of Jesus Christ was launched, filled with the Holy Spirit, it was a glorious day. Jesus told his disciples, wait before you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Wait for the promise of the Father. Well, the promise of the Father came, and boy, did he come. This rushing wind filled the room that they were praying in. Tongues of fire appeared on their heads. They began preaching in languages that they didn't even know. And all these folks from all around the Mediterranean basin, northern Africa and and the Roman Empire, were all hearing the glories of God being preached in their hometown languages. 
It was incredible. And it's in this context that these people standing around were like, whoa, this is really, really, really weird. And Peter preaches. And by the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, he says these words to the people who are listening to him. After they say, what shall we do to be saved? And he said, save yourselves from this perverse or crooked generation. When he said save yourself, as I mentioned last week, he doesn't mean again, atone for your own sins. Become your own substitute. Do things to earn God's salvation. That's not what he means by that. What he means is this. Those of you who are coming to faith in Jesus, recognize the truth of the world around us. It is not your home. The world around you is reshaping you. It's renaming you. It's contorting your identity. And it's poisoning your character. And it's further deforming your hearts. And causing your hearts to callous over to the beautiful things of God. And he says, see this. Feel the weight of this. Don't be naive. Recognize the world that you live in. And come out of it. Not move out of it and separate yourself from it. God has called us into the world to bring the gospel to people who don't know him yet. And I commend to you that we should be doing life in such a way where non-believing people should be sitting at our table and having dinner with us. And we enjoy them and they enjoy us and come to know the Jesus that we know and love. So we're not talking about withdrawal from society here. What we are talking about is making sure that we live in such a way that we take our newfound faith in Jesus so seriously that we recognize the contaminating effects that this world has on our hearts and we get proactive and on the offense. And so they came to faith in Jesus and they were baptized. And then they picked up four distinctive practices that they did often. And over a lifetime of patient, faithful endurance and following of Jesus, these people were reshaped. And those four things, anybody remember what they were last week? Prayer, breaking bread, fellowship, God's Word. Submitting themselves to the authority of Scripture, God's Word. That's one. Two, the breaking of bread, practicing the Lord's Supper. We believe at our church that anybody can baptize somebody else and anybody can offer the Lord's Supper. Anybody can. That's what we believe. Breaking of bread, uh, fellowshipping. That's a shorthand for having a lot of good food together around a dinner table. Laughing, enjoying one another, being together sharing painful stories and glorious stories of victory. It's being in each other's lives. It's knowing one another. And it is also developing a fluency in prayer. So that when you're together, the only one praying isn't the preacher before the food is eaten. But we all come to know each other and develop a comfort with one another so that we have a fluency in prayer to go to God together and to worship Him. So it's the scriptures, God's word, the Bible, the breaking of bread, fellowship or eating good food, 
We do that well in the South. We don't need help with that. We just need to learn how to focus on the people we're eating with rather than on the food in front of us. I'm talking to myself. And then, and then prayer. And then prayer. I mean, I like hanging out with you. I just really love food. Um, if you're not there, that's okay too. I just really love food. I'm learning to see you as more important and like allow the food to bring me and you together. And that's, I think, one of our, one of our weaknesses and honestly diseases in our culture. So he says in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about this church culture. And I would submit to you that Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, as I've heard said by another pastor friend of mine, it is the Magna Carta on what it looks like to be a part of the church. It is, it is the... Um, Maybe most the provocative statement and clear statement in scripture on what it looks like to be a part of church. And you're going to notice in here that it doesn't talk about going to church services and Bible studies. I'm not saying it doesn't say that. I'm not saying the implication isn't there. But we're talking more here about what a culture of what it, uh, of the culture of the local church and what it should feel like to be a part of the Jesus movement of people. And this is our dream and vision for Renewal Church. What we're going to talk through today, and this will become part two. I realized in the first service that it was two parts, not just one. So uh, we'll talk about that today and, and conclude this next week. But I want to read through the first several verses. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to point out something on the front end of this. Maybe if you're at home and doing a Bible study and you're reading this, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, how can I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Hmm, I should probably stop doing this and stop doing that. Maybe I should read my Bible more each day. And those things might all be good things. But the context here is not just you in a room by yourself, the context is the church. The you, the Y-O-U, is plural for the people of God. He is prescribing to them what it looks like to be a part of the church, how to function in the church. And he says that if you are going to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, he's talking about the church, the calling that belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. Our calling. I was talking with a friend the other day. We were talking about Sunday mornings and what we thought about Sundays and why we do church on Sundays. And, and I, I say this to a lot of people that I don't put pressure on myself to, you know, hit a home run on Sunday mornings. If I preach a dud of a message and the worship is like, uh, okay, give or take, Sunday morning wasn't a loss. Because one, we understand this. Sunday morning does not equal church. Sunday morning is a part of church life. And for 2,000 years, believers have been gathering on Sunday mornings to remember three things. One, in the past, Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday morning. We're gathering every Sunday to remember his resurrection. We think about the present. We, the church of Jesus Christ, play a pivotal role in functioning as a prophetic voice in our culture. A prophetic voice. We reveal through our actions and our lifestyle the God of love and the God of truth. That's why God planted us in this city, in this neck of the woods. And we also think about the future. 
that there will be another Sunday down the road when Jesus returns and there will be a resurrection of the saints. And we will live with him forever in the new creation. This is why we do church on Sunday mornings. So if today's message is really lame for you, I want to encourage you. It's okay. It's all right. I promise you, I feel worse about my sermons than you do. So, um, so this is why we go to church. But he says here, walk, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You, church, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Would you say our calling? And our calling is this, to strive for humility, gentleness, patience, enduring with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like, Chris, man, that, that is hard. I know it is. I know it is. The reason we recoil at stuff like this is because if you've been raised in the church you have been subconsciously taught that if you sign up for the Jesus Club, Jesus-y things should be really easy. Because he just sort of takes over, and we just sort of float like we're floating down the stream. That is not the way it works. One of the first times the word worship is ever used in Scripture was when God commanded Abraham to kill his son. Does that sound easy? Does that make you want to turn on a Hillsong record and shout? Does that make you want to do that? No. No. Worship was about obeying God even at great cost. I'm thankful God didn't let him do that. He was testing Abraham's loyalty. It's, just, it's a disturbing story. But it's one that sets us, that open, that helps us to understand from the outset, worship is not the latest playlist on iTunes. Worship is obedience. We celebrate and sing. We can call that worship. It is. We can worship and sing. But that is not the summation of worship. Worship is following Jesus. It's following him. So when he tells us to strive for humility and gentleness, he's saying, worship. Recognize who you are. You are my people. You belong to me. Paul told the Corinthians, that Jesus bought you with his blood. Your body belongs to him. It's not yours anymore. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, Paul says. So we worship. And we're called to live lives of humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This isn't individualistic. This isn't about you, you know, keeping your nose clean, reading your Bible every day. That's part of it. This mic is driving me crazy this morning. Good gracious. Um, so it's not individualistic. And these characteristics are characteristics of Jesus himself. Because we are called to be conformed into the image of Jesus. We need our understanding of manhood to be changed it's not raising our back and bowing up on somebody. It's giving the gift of mercy. It's striving for humility and gentleness. You might say, man, humility and gentleness. I can't even wrap my mind around that. I understand. I get it. Those weren't always beautiful virtues to me either. Maybe I can just give you a, maybe step one. Um, when I first started following Jesus, or trying to, the moment that I really surrendered to Jesus, 
was when I recognized that I belonged to him. And I had to follow him. And to be okay with the uncertainty of the future. I was 17. I fought hard against God. Really hard. And my heart was really hard toward him. And yet, mysteriously, he was always, I just felt like he was, there was always this pull, this compulsion towards Jesus. And finally, after living my life in such a way that was pure anxiety and rage, trying to manage my image and my behavior so that people would love me and want to be with me and failing at that. I just got so tired. It's like, Jesus, I can't do this. I know that I'm lonely. I'm broken. I love sinful tendencies in my life. I love them. But I know they're killing me, and they're hollowing me out, and they're coring me out. I didn't say it that eloquently, but um, um, it was more like this. It sounded actually, it was these words, Jesus, I don't want to follow you but I guess I will. I was honestly what I said when I was 17 years old. And you know, I find that I pray that prayer a lot. I don't want to do this. I don't want to trust you. One of my secret ambitions, a friend wrote, wrote a blog about me, and I was like, thanks, I'm, you know, that's great. But uh, he didn't name me, but you know, one of my secret ambitions I shared with him was is that it would be great to be able to lead a church and, and like not have to trust God all the time. Not have to really depend on God to pay the bills, to give us a place to meet, um, for people not to leave, uh, all this stuff. Just pure anxiety. And I find every day Jesus is calling me to just say those words. God, I don't want to follow you. I want to manage this in my own strength and my own power. But I need to surrender. That's how it started for me. It was... uh, I've had a number of conversations this week about the term vulnerability. It's been really weird. Um, But vulnerability, as I've come to understand it, is this. Very simply, to speak the truth about yourself. To speak the truth about yourself. Um, And I think you ought to speak the truth about yourself to God. God, humility really sucks. Gentleness is ridiculous. but I know you're calling me to this. And if you belong to Jesus, you know know I'm talking. You know I'm talking to you. You belong to him. And in your mind, gentleness and humility might be repugnant and stupid and the dumbest thing you've ever heard. And yet deep down, you know this is true. You know this is who you're supposed to be. This is who you are. And the Holy Spirit wants this to explode out of your life. Because as it says at the end of chapter 4, verse 16, every part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in robust theological understanding. No. What, do we, what, what, do we, what should be happening as we work together as the body of Jesus? What is the evidence of that? Love. Love. 
And what does love look like? We all have our own definition of love. I love you, brother. You know, I'll never intend to call you or text you, but I love you. Um, love is simply, I think, what Paul is prescribing at the beginning of chapter 4. What are those virtues again? Help me. I think you said it all. I don't know. I can't tell. But um, humility, gentleness. This mic is pushing me to the end of my humility and gentleness. Um, So why does Paul have a right to tell us to live this way? Why? What business does he have to tell me how to deal with my relationships and to strive for humility and gentleness and to maintain the bond of peace? by the unity of the Spirit. He says there's one body and one Spirit in verse 4. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is he trying to tell us? That God is a God of one. We have one body, the body of Jesus Christ. We are of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We were called with one hope that as we endure in this life, that we will experience the hope that is to come at the resurrection. He says that not only that, we have one Lord. That's our Savior, Jesus. We have one faith. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we are bound to Jesus. And Jesus' story becomes our story. So I might go from being an addict to being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not based on any merit of my own but because of the free gift of grace that was given to me through Jesus because of God's mercy. I might be a convicted felon. I might be a serial manipulator. I might be drowning in depression that stems from anxiety. And my anxiety might be the result of just not trusting God and me feeling the burden to manage my life and make my life. And without me being in control, I'm in terror that it might fall apart. Whatever you are, whatever your story is, when you put your faith in Jesus, your story drowns in his story. His past becomes your past. His endurance becomes your endurance. His resisting of sin becomes your resisting of sin. His glory will be your glory. This is the gospel. This is the hope the scriptures repeatedly talk about. All of this is based on one body, 
one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism in which we become a part of the community of believers. One, one, one. And then Paul just is, it just almost ecstatically gets carried away in verse six. And he says, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I love Paul's view of a big, glorious God. Now, I'm going to use a few words here. I don't understand any of them, but I think they're true. This is, this is not just a commentary on spiritual things or theology. This is a commentary on the nature of the world. This is a commentary on metaphysics and cosmetology, not the makeup thing, but like how the world and the universe works. This is how all that works together. God's presence pervades everything and is over everything. God is supreme. He is supreme. And Paul gets carried away worshiping him. That's a good place to amen if you believe in that kind of thing. Um, So when he says all these things, he's wanting us to feel the weight that as a community of believers, when we devolve into strife and unresolved anger and meanness and unkindness, when we allow our hearts to callous over towards brothers and sisters, when we in our heads create a narrative about somebody else's behavior rather than giving that person the benefit of a doubt, we're not just misbehaving. We are rejecting the gospel and the one true God of the universe. This is hard. I've got tension in a a relationship with a really good friend of mine. He's not a part of this church. This week we had a long conversation. It was really hard. It's still not fully resolved. There's been misunderstandings. We're both like striving for humility but there's like a shadow that's been left in our friendship. And it's painful. It's a, it's a burden that I'm carrying right now. The temptation is to say, well, move on. Let it go. Because it's so easy to do that. It's taken everything in me to strive for unity with my brother. And him too. Him too. Him too. It's not like a clear verse on how to fix this issue that we've got. So I'm just calling myself back to what the scriptures are teaching. Humility, gentleness, patience, enduring love, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is not easy. In some ways I feel like I'm being asked to, you know, like Abraham, to take my son to a mountaintop and plunge a knife into his chest. It's hard. Whoever told you that spiritual things, Holy Spirit things, should be always fun and beautiful and easy, it was wrong. Sometimes it's really hard. And when we take the hard path, we honor God. We worship God. We worship Him. I'm going to conclude here this morning.
It's part one. We'll finish this next week, part two. I really hope you come back. Uh, My friends, it is a privilege and a pleasure and a grace to be able to shepherd you. I love you. I thank God for you. And I pray his blessings over each soul in this room today.